The sermon text from today is from the book of Genesis, beginning with chapter 11, verse 27. Listen as I read God's word. Abram's family. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out for Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The call of Abram. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you personally, uh, I get to serve as the lead pastor here. And sometime this morning, I'd love to uh, connect with you after the gathering, if I haven't already. As we come to God's word this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. He remembers his covenant forever. The promise he made for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. He remembers his holy promise given to his servant Abraham. He brought his people out of Egypt with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. He gave them the lands of the nations, and they fell heir to what others had toiled for that they may keep his precepts and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Father, this morning we do give you thanks for the ways that the Bible reveals you working in time and in history to bring about your redemptive purposes. Thank you, Lord, for taking people like Abraham, for taking people who are weak, people who are not capable, who are not qualified, and doing amazing things in and through them. Lord, we pray that as we spend a little bit of time looking at Abraham's life this morning, that you would open our eyes to see the wonder of your workings, and that you would help us to see your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to leave here changed people. We ask this all in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. 
Well, I do think it's fair to say that nobody really likes being seen as weak. I think this is part of why uh, it's very tempting for us when someone asks us, how are you, to just instantly and without much thought reply, oh, I'm doing good, when maybe we're actually not doing good at all, when maybe we feel like we're dying on the inside, but that's just the reaction that we sort of give. I think this is part of why it's hard to admit that we're wrong. I think it's hard to ask for help. That's why it's hard for us to say things like, I don't know. (laughs) It's hard for us to say things like, I'm sorry. I think this is why we we want so badly for our successes and for the areas where we are competent, those things to be very public, very visible, and we want all of our failures to be private, behind the scenes where nobody else can see them. This is obviously uh, the reason why men simply will not ask for directions. (laughs) We don't like being seen as weak. But it's not just men. Nobody likes being seen as weak. This is true for me. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, The nightmares that I have are about me being seen as weak, about my weaknesses being exposed. So typically what this looks like is uh, I show up at some place for a conference or something and someone says to me, hey, you know that you're up in five minutes, right? Go grab your mic and get out there. And I'm like, well, well, come again? What'd you say? Uh, And I have not prepared a word. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what there is to, I got nothing. And that makes me feel so weak and vulnerable. And then, of course, I wake up and I feel so relieved that it was just a dream. (laughs) That, oh, tomorrow is not Sunday, or that this thing I was supposed to speak at, that didn't actually happen. And I feel relieved because of that. This is the reality. We don't like weakness. In fact, we spend a lot of energy to do things that show that we are not weak. But here's the thing. Weakness has a special place in God's economy. Weakness has a special place in God's redemptive purposes. The work that God is doing in our world to bring healing and renewal and restoration, weakness plays a very special integral part in that work. And actually weakness, our own weaknesses, are actually good news for us, if we have the eyes to see it. We're in a sermon series right now titled Gospel Foundations. And what we're doing is we're looking at the story of the gospel as it's laid out in scripture, and we're sort of looking at it as different movements in that story. And we've been through the first three already, so we've looked at God, we've looked at humanity, we've looked at rebellion, and this week we find ourselves looking at the promise. The promise that God makes that he's going to bring renewal and healing into his world, and specifically what we're going to see today is the way that the weakness factors into that, the special and unique place that weakness plays in God's redemptive purposes. So as we look at the passage that you heard read just a moment ago, we're going to see the passage falling into two different parts. And the first part could be titled this, The Downward Spiral of Humanity. Now the book of Genesis is, uh, is given to us in two sort of major parts. There's Genesis 1 through 11, and there's Genesis 12 through 50. And as we come to Genesis 12, it's almost impossible for us to really understand the significance of what God is doing here without a working understanding of what happened before. Because after all, there's 11 chapters of activity that have led up to this moment with Abraham. And so we would be wise to spend just a few moments doing a flyover of Genesis 1 through 11 and seeing where Abraham fits into that story. 
So let's, uh, let's do that just very briefly. In Genesis 1 to 3, we see God creating his good world. It's exactly as it's designed to be. He creates human beings as his image bearers to be co-rulers over creation and wise stewards of the created world. And then Adam and Eve rebel against God. They choose to do what's right in their own eyes. They choose to disobey the instruction of the Lord. And as a result of that, there's a poison of sin that is unleashed into the world. There's a poison of sin that is unleashed into every human heart, and we've been experiencing the effects of that brokenness and the effects of that sin ever since that moment. But then we come to Genesis chapter 4, and this is where we begin to see a pattern that starts to emerge. So what we see immediately after Adam and Eve rebel against God is we see a story about Cain and Abel, their children. And what we see, the first part of the pattern is, is an act of individual sin. So Cain murders his brother Abel. And so this is what we're, what we're supposed to, coming from Genesis 1 and 2, having read Genesis 3, we're supposed to come to Genesis 4 and say, my goodness, this is what life is like outside the garden. This is the first thing that is given to us. The first thing we see outside of the garden is people murdering one another. People who are so consumed with anger and rage and competition that they'll kill each other. And this is the very first thing we see outside of the garden, and that should leave a kind of sinking feeling with us of, oh, this is what life is like outside the presence of God. We see this individual sin. The next thing we see in chapter four is sin on a societal level. We read about a man named Lamech. You may have heard of Lamech. Uh, We're told in Genesis chapter four that Lamech says to his wives in verse 23, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. I think what's happening here is this is describing an instance of a kind of military encounter. Okay, so you've got him saying there's this young, this young man, and the Hebrew word there literally means a young boy, a teenage boy, has injured me, and then I killed him. And I think this is, that this is referring to a kind of military war kind of scenario. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for young teenage boys to be in a city or in a people group's sort of military or militia and to go out and to fight if there was a conflict or a, or a confrontation with a different people group. And I think what that shows us, if we understand it that way, what it shows us is that the sin of Cain is being played out, not just on interpersonal relationships, the sin of Cain is being played out on a society-wide level. So it's no longer just that murder and killing each other is a part of sort of one-on-one interpersonal relationships, it's now people groups that are seeking to kill other people groups and engaging in war, engaging in conflict and, and these kinds of things. So we see this pattern begin to emerge of there's individual sin, then there's a sin that we see on a level of kind of a level of society, but then there's something that interrupts that pattern, and it is we see God's grace and a new Adam. So we see God extending, he, he brings his judgment into the world in the book of Genesis chapter six uh, with the flood, but we see that there's a man named Noah who finds favor, who finds grace in God's eyes. And so Noah and his family are brought through the waters of death, and we see the very first thing that's said in Genesis chapter 9 as they're let off the ark. 
Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar to you? So the creation blessing and the creation mandate that were given to Adam and Eve in chapter 1 are now given to Noah. And so it's as if God is starting over. There's a new humanity that's being born with Noah. And Noah here is, is described as the person who receives the creation mandate and the creation blessing. Noah is set forth to us in the text as a kind of new Adam. And so we're supposed to get to Noah and think, okay, things have gone poorly, but maybe he will be different. Maybe Noah's going to be the one to break the pattern. But Noah is not the one who breaks the pattern. Instead of breaking the pattern, Noah is the one who carries the pattern forward. Because later in chapter 9, what we read about is Noah, he gets off the ark, he plants him a vineyard, he grows him some grapes, he makes him some wine, he drinks him lots of that wine, he gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. That's the first thing we read about Noah. And we get to that moment and we're like, disappointment. He's not the one. We thought he would be different. We thought he would be the one to break the pattern, the downward spiral of sin, and yet he's not the one. But then the pattern recycles. So we see the individual sin of Noah getting drunk and passing out naked in his tent. The very next thing we see after a genealogy in chapter 11 is a Tower of Babel, where human beings come together to make a name for themselves. And they build what's, uh, this, this tower, which was a, uh, a, a, um, a pyramid or a ziggurat, is what they would call it in the ancient world. And they built this as a way of demonstrating, this is how great we are. This is how powerful, this is how awesome we are. So they build this temple, they build this ziggurat as a way of expressing their own importance and their own power and their own significance. So again, we see an individual sin of Noah followed by sin on the level of society. And then, what's the next thing we see in Genesis 12? We see Abraham. And so Abraham is the completion of this pattern then. Where Noah gets drunk, we see the Tower of Babel, and then we see Abraham. Where God then extends his grace and then says to Abraham, I will bless you, I will make you into a great nation, I will make your name great, you'll be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So five times in this passage, the word blessing or bless is used. And so again, we're supposed to read this and we're supposed to have our minds, it's like a hyperlink back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're supposed to see that Abraham now is being set forth to us as a kind of new Adam. Maybe Abraham is going to be the one to break the pattern. So we see individual sin, societal sin, God's grace, and a new Adam. And so what this, as we look at those first chapters of the Bible, what we see is this downward spiral of humanity. The downward spiral of humanity that is only stopped by the intervening grace and mercy of God. That's what we see. Then we come to this part of the passage, and this part could be titled this, The Gracious Promise of God. So we see this downward spiral, and we see that downward spiral being interrupted by the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God in Abraham. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the lands I will show you. So here, Abraham is called to leave everything that is familiar to him, 
everything that is comfortable to him. He's being called to leave everything that was a source of meaning and identity and significance and purpose. This is a communal, family-oriented society, and Abraham is being called to leave his extended family and to go and to sort of break off. And so he's being called to leave behind the things that were a source of meaning and comfort and security and safety for him. He's called to leave those things behind, and then God gives them, him this list of incredible promises. And the three sort of main promises that we see here is that God's going to give him a land. He's going to take him to a land he's going to show him. He's going to give him children. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the third aspect of the promise is the blessing, uh, the, the restored Eden blessing. So he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So that creation blessing that God had pronounced on his creation, he's going to once again pronounce that, and it's going to come into the world through Abraham. Now for the, the blessing of God on his creation to actually stay, what that means is that there has to be an undoing. There has to be a reversal of sin and its effects. And so that's the, sort of the heartbeat of what this promise is really about, is that God is going to undo. God is going to reverse the effects of sin and death in our world, and that's what he's promising Abraham here. He's promising that as he already promised in Genesis 3, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's what God is promising here to Abraham. Now, these three promises are pretty incredible. But there's kind of a problem with these promises given to Abraham, isn't there? What is the problem with these promises? We read in Chapter 11, verse 30, now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. So Abraham and Sarah lived their entire adult lives with the pain of infertility. And it's to them that God says, I'm going to give you lots and lots and lots of descendants. You got to think that that may have felt something like a slap on the face the first time Abraham heard that. Are you kidding me? Me? That's what God promises him. To Abraham, who is something of a nomad, who doesn't have an established land country in the way that we think about it, he's going to give a land. To the person who's unable to conceive, he's going to give children. When we look at this, we would think, okay, if God's plan included a family with lots and lots of generations of children... God chose the wrong person. That's at least how it, it strikes us, isn't it? Why would God choose these people? In fact, God could have chosen anyone on the face of the planet at that time. And yet he chose Abraham and Sarah. God could have waited until there was some other lady who came along who was ultra fertile, who could have lots of babies I know someone who's had nine children, and I, I, I can't fathom what that's like. But God could have waited for someone like that. And instead, he made this promise to a guy and his wife who were unable to conceive. And the question that we should be asking is why? They're old. They're physically incapable of having children. They're not capable. They're not qualified. They don't come from wealth or prominence. They're sort of just average nobodies who are unable to conceive, and God makes these incredible promises to them. Now, on the one hand, you can say God chose them in spite of 
the fact that they are old and in spite of the fact that they are unable to have children. And I think in part that's true, that God chose them in spite of all those things. I'm not sure that that quite gets to the heart of it, though. I think what is true is that God chose them not just in spite of the fact that they are old and unable to have children. God chose them because they are old and unable to have children. That is exactly what qualified them to be used by God was their weakness. God could have chosen anyone on the planet for this purpose, to be a part of his redemptive plan, and yet he chose them. And, and by choosing them, what God is doing is he's putting an exclamation point on his power. He's putting an exclamation point on his grace, on his kindness. He's making it abundantly clear, these people have nothing to offer this plan that I'm, in, that I'm bringing out in the world, this plan I'm rolling out. These people are not the ones who are making it happen. I'm going to take this, uh, this married couple who has not been able to conceive and I'm going to do all these incredible things through them in order to make it abundantly clear that it is not them. It is not about them. In fact, they offer nothing. The only thing that Abraham and Sarah offer to God in this is their brokenness. The only thing they offer is their weakness and the dysfunction of their physical bodies. And as you read the rest of the account of Abraham and Sarah's life, you see that they are messed up, broken people who sow that brokenness into their children's lives. And their children are messed up because of it. And so it can't be. God is not choosing them because they have some wonderful thing they can offer God in his redemptive purposes. God is choosing them precisely because they are weak, because they are incapable, because they are old, because they are not able to have kids. He's doing it to make it abundantly clear that they can't do anything. They offer him nothing, and yet God is going to do all of the work. The only thing that they are called to do is trust God. The only thing they are called to do is simply believe the promises that God makes, that he is going to give them a land, he's going to give them lots of children, and he's going to restore the Eden blessing into the world. And to make it worse, you know, it, it's... It, <laughs> You know, Abraham, we're told in verse 4, is 75 years old at this point. God waits 25 more years to give them children. Like, at this moment, they're saying, that's impossible. It's impossible that God can do this. And then God waits 25 more years as if to say, oh, really? You think it's impossible now? It is. 25 more years of your body is aging and breaking down doesn't stop my power, can't stop my plans from going forward. So God chooses them. The only thing that they offer is their brokenness. What we see in the life of Abraham and Sarah is this. We see God meets them in their weakness and does something for them that they cannot do for themselves. That's the heartbeat of the story of Abraham. God calls him, not because he's capable, not because he's strong, but because he's incapable and because he's weak. God meets them in the midst of all of their weakness and he does something for them that they cannot do for themselves. And friends, this is not just their story. This is our story too. 
When we read this story of Abraham and Sarah, we are supposed to see something of ourselves in them. We're supposed to have a sense of, not a sense of superiority, looking down at them and saying, oh boy, look at all the ways you guys screwed this thing up. If I would have been there, I wouldn't have doubted. If I'd have been there, I wouldn't have committed that sin. If we, if we look at the story of Abraham and Sarah like that, it shows we don't know who, who we really are. We're not supposed to look at them and feel an air of superiority. We're supposed to look at them and say, the circumstances are different, but that is exactly the story of my life. The sin and the idolatry and the brokenness and the weakness that exists inside of them. Sure, it expresses itself in different ways in my life, but it is still just as present in me as it was in them. And I need God to do something for me that I'm incapable of doing for myself. So we're supposed to see ourselves in their story. And as we do, we will realize just how weak we really are. But there's good news for us. The good news is this, that in Jesus, God has met us in our weakness. In Jesus, God himself has met us in our weakness, and he's not just met us there. He's overcome our weaknesses. Think about the words of, that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, where he says, you were not just sort of... Uh, mortally wounded, you're not just sort of in, in, in rough shape. He says, you were dead in your transgressions. The idolatry and the sin that exists in your life has caused you to be spiritually dead. And apart from the intervening grace and work of God, we are incapable of making ourselves alive to the things of God. So we're supposed to hear that and we're supposed to look at Sarah and, and, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb is something of an illustration of the deadness and the barrenness of our heart apart from the intervening grace of God. But that's the good news is that yes, we are weak. Yes, we are spiritually dead, but God has met us in our weakness. God has overcome our weakness. And here's how this good news of the gospel Here's the good news as it relates to our weakness. God overcame our weakness by becoming weak. This is the message of the gospel, that God overcame our weakness by himself becoming weak. You see, generations later, after Abraham and Sarah have this child of divine promise, there would be another child who was born of miraculous birth. Jesus came into the world. You know what Jesus could have done? God could have said, you know, I'm just going to uh, sort of bring Jesus into the world. He's just going to sort of appear out of thin air as an adult. God could have done that. He could have just walked out from the middle of the desert and no one knows who he was or where he came from. But man, this is God among us. That's not the way that God chose to join us in our humanity. God met us in our weakness by taking on human flesh and becoming a baby, which if you've spent time around babies, you know that they are nothing but a little, a little ball of weakness and vulnerability. That's what children are, and this is the way that God has chosen to enter our world. In the weakest way he possibly could enter the world, 
And then Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus chose weakness. Do you know that? Jesus chose weakness. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. I don't get it. (laughs) I can't fully put that all together, but Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and he chose weakness. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that Jesus did not count his equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. He didn't pull the God card to get out of difficult situations. He chose weakness and he gave up his, he chose not to cling to his divinity, to use it for his own advantage, but rather became a servant, rather became a slave and eventually would suffer and die. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he subjected himself to people like Pilate, who were thought to be the strong ones, the ones with the power. Jesus subjected himself to them, even though they only have a veneer or an illusion of real power. Jesus subjected himself to the self-serving whims of Pilate, who said, boy, if I don't hand him over to be executed, there's going to be a riot on my hands and I don't want that. What an inconvenience. Jesus subjected himself to the religious leaders of the time who were coming up with false witnesses to try and find ways to accuse him to have him executed, who were shouting, crucify him, who would rather have someone who is actually known as a murderer and an insurrectionist, they're trying to get him sprung from prison and get Jesus crucified. And Jesus subjected himself to weakness. He chose weakness. And friends, here the good news is this. Our salvation was accomplished in the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness. Jesus went to the cross, and as he's hanging there, he's hanging naked, completely exposed, completely vulnerable in the weakest possible situation. And that is the moment as Jesus hung and suffered and died on the cross. That is Jesus at his weakest moment. And it was at the weakest moment of Jesus' life that he brought about our salvation. Jesus hung there naked, vulnerable, weak. And as his body breathed its last, as his body went limp, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The point being that through Jesus and through Jesus alone, we now have unmediated access to God the Father. We have unmediated access to the presence of God through the person of Jesus. So Jesus' life was one where he came into this world in weakness. He chose weakness throughout his earthly ministry and it's our salvation that was accomplished in the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness. And so do you see that weakness has a very special place in the way that God does things in the world. And oh, how we wish it was different, don't we? There's so many areas of pain. So many ways that we see deficiencies in ourselves. And man, we wish it was different. We wish God would use strong people. We wish that when we become a follower of Jesus, you know what it means? That our life is going to get easy. That we're going to have lives that are now convenient and and comfortable and God's going to 
God's going to bless us, and that is certainly true. And yet there is no place in the Bible that says when you come to Jesus, your life's going to get easier. But what the Bible does say is that the way into the kingdom of God is through weakness. And so if we think we're too good for weakness, we really think that we're too good for the kingdom of God. As we come to the communion table, what we practice is embracing weakness. We come to the communion table and we physically stand up out of our seats and we come forward as a, as a physical demonstration of, I'm, I'm weak. I so desperately need the salvation that Jesus alone can provide for me. And what do we do? We come forward and we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We as weak people come forward and receive Jesus at his weakest moment. And that's what we get to remember and celebrate at the table each week. Is that yes, there's many areas of weakness in our lives. And that is precisely what qualifies us to be used by God. As we come to the Lord's table today, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent reflection and confession as we, uh, as we make our way to the table. Just take a few moments. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. In thought and in word and in deed. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess the ways that by our actions, by our words, we've demonstrated that we have no value for weakness. Lord, for all the ways that we try and cover our weakness, for the ways that we try to prove our excellence or our competence or our achievements, for the ways, Lord, that we have looked at weakness as a deficiency, instead of something that qualifies us to be used by you. Lord, we ask that you would give us a, a renewed perspective on what weakness really is as we set out to follow the weakness of your son, Jesus. In your mercy, God, we pray that you would forgive what we have been we pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name.
And all God's people said, amen.